All right, thank you all for coming. Tonight we are in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. Revelation 9, verses 13 to 21. And we read. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for another opportunity to come together to uh, search your word together, Lord, to search you in your word, Lord. So I pray that you would reveal yourself tonight to us. I pray that you would reveal your truth to us. I pray that you would show us the, the one story of redemption, Lord, that is headed towards a sure end, and that we would have faith, Lord, that all that you've said will come to pass, that we may, in this time, Lord, persevere with our testimony, Lord, and our love for you, and our mission as the church, Lord. We just pray that you would work this in us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so we're still looking at the third vision cycle, which includes the seven trumpets of judgment. Tonight, we're going to talk about the sixth trumpet, or the second woe. And as I said back when we began looking at this cycle, when we get to the last two trumpets, we're going to see judgments that come near and at the end of time when Christ returns. This is similar to the seals that we looked at. In the first four seals, if you remember, we saw realities of the here and now that have always been and will always be until Christ's return. The spread of the gospel, war, famine, and death, which included death by war and famine. The fourth seal, if you remember, was all-encompassing. Then in the fifth seal, we saw the heavenly reality of those who have died in faith, represented by the saints under the altar. In the sixth seal, we saw the world's reaction as Christ returns, and we saw the sealing of the elect. This was the separating of the sheep and the goats, or the wheat and the weeds. And then in the seventh seal, we saw the end, the judgment of the wicked and the destruction of the old earth. Well, in a similar way, in the first four trumpets, we saw temporal judgments that have taken place since the first advent of Christ that will continue until the second coming. We saw that the unsaved are judged by their own sin, by the rejection of the gospel, and by the deceptions of Satan. In the fourth trumpet, we saw that darkness was that all-encompassing uh, part of all those judgments, like the fourth seal was all-encompassing of the previous seals. In the fifth trumpet, we saw the reality of hell for those who have died apart from Christ, like the fifth seal was the reality of heaven for those who die in Christ. And now we'll see that the sixth trumpet will represent another judgment, but one that will not take place until the end, right before Christ's return. And to do that, we're going to cover a lot of scripture tonight, a little bit of history, and even some geography. And I'll tell you at the outset, this trumpet represents God's judgment on false converts who will apostatize from the church right before Christ's return. 
But we need to understand the symbolism of what John is seeing because these are symbols that are used throughout the Bible. So let's just dive right in. Revelation 9.13, we read, When the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now, we've seen this golden altar before. It is the altar of incense that in the temple was in the presence of God right before the Holy of Holies. Now, if you remember, we saw this in the fifth seal. Revelation 6. When he, the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, in the seventh seal, if you remember, we saw those prayers were answered. First, God hears their prayer. Revelation 8.3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of his saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So God hears their prayers, and then God answers their prayers in verse 5. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And as we saw, that represents the return of Christ in the final judgment. Well, what we see in the sixth trumpet is a recapitulation of the start of these events, of the start of the end. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, golden altar before God. The horns of the altar themselves call out to God. It's the same thing that we saw with the angel burning the incense, and the incense representing the prayers of the saints rising up to God, how that reaches God. Well, here the saints under the altar, they're praying. It's that same prayer they're praying, and the horns speaking are the mediation of him in whose name we pray, because the horns represent Christ. The incense is the prayers of the saints who are under the altar, and the horns represent the mediator of their prayers. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we've already seen how the altar of incense and all the other gold-plated furnishings of the tabernacle that stood closest to God's presence, closest to the ark, how they all in some way represent Christ. So we won't rehash all of that here. But I do want to point out again what we've seen, that the horns are meant to represent power. In the Old Testament, a horn was a metaphor for the power of God. We see this in David's prayer at the end of his life in 2 Samuel 22, where he prays, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. As we also saw, the lamb that John sees in heaven that opens the seals has horns that we saw represent his Holy Spirit. Back in Revelation 5, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And as we've seen, Christ is now present with us through his spirit, and he works his power through his spirit. So the horns here on the altar represent the power of Christ. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And he is mediating those prayers of a saint, and his power is commanding that their prayers be answered. Verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I also think there's a reference to the prophecy of Zechariah here. We've, we've read Zechariah 1 uh, a couple times, but here, here's another part of that vision. Zechariah 1, starting in verse 18. The prophet says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, 
These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Notice, the horns represent God's power. It scatters Judah, but then judges the nations that God used to scatter his people. Now, this is a reference to the power and the sovereignty of God in all these things. He uses nations to scatter his people, then judges the nations that do it for their sin. This is exactly what happened with Assyria and Babylon in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Zechariah prophesied after the return from captivity. The book of Zechariah begins with a call to repentance for the returned captives. Then Zechariah has the vision of the four horsemen we've already considered, and then he has this vision. It is talking about God's restoration of the faithful remnant from the land of Babylon and the punishment of those Babylon who persecuted his people. And if we remember that the church is the true Israel and that Jerusalem often symbolizes the church in Old Testament prophecy, we see that there's a further fulfillment of this prophecy beyond the return to the physical lands that had already happened by the time he prophesied this. This further fulfillment is what's in view in the sixth trumpet to begin with. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Now we've seen four angels before. before. Before the sixth trumpet, we saw them in the sixth seal, Revelation 7. Where we read, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying... Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And we saw there that these four angels represent the agents of God's judgment. It's not just four angels, it's all the angels that come in judgment. We looked at how Jesus talked about angels coming as agents of judgment at his return. We saw here these angels did not begin to mete out the final judgment until all the people of God were sealed for redemption. Well, what we see here in, in Revelation 9.14 is the release of these angels for judgment. Again, the four angels are representative of all the angels that will come in judgment when Christ returns. But note here that these angels are bound, it says, at the Euphrates River. What is that all about? Well, first we have to understand where the Euphrates is. The, I know it's a little small from where you're sitting, but you see they're all the way on the left of the screen. That is the Mediterranean Sea. Right next to that is Israel. Below that is Egypt. All the way out there in the east where Babylon is, they sit on the Euphrates River. They're between the Euphrates and the Tigris, both of which flow down into the Persian Gulf. Now, the Euphrates River plays an important role in the Bible. It's one of the four rivers named that split off from the Garden of Eden. It's used as a border of the Promised Land by God multiple times. When he makes the promise to Abraham, he says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God repeated this at Sinai. But notice here... In Exodus 23, we're going to get to the mention of angels as the protector of God's people in an age of judgment on the Canaanites. But look what he says. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, 
nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. Also note here that God is very clear, as he is throughout the entire Old Testament, that his people, Israel, are not to dwell with those who are not his people. Because remember, Israel's physical separation from the other physical peoples of the world points to the spiritual separation between us and the unsaved. But what happens is some look at this promise of God and they say, well, God clearly made a mistake here. Because look how far east the Euphrates is. Israel never came close to inheriting that much land. But it's a thing. God doesn't say the Euphrates is the eastern border of the land. The Euphrates is the northern border of the land. The Red Sea is the southern border. The wilderness of Arabia is the eastern border. And the Sea of the Philistines, also called the Great Sea, is the Mediterranean. Take a look. This is the, the extent of the land under King Solomon. You can see the bottom here, those two little legs that come up are the Red Sea. You have the Great Sea of the Sea of the Philistines. You have the Arabian Desert to the right. And all the way up the top, you see the land goes all the way to the Euphrates River. So this is, this is the northern, sorry, this is the northern border of Israel. It goes all the way up to the Euphrates River. Now, why is this pertinent to our study for tonight? Well, aside from how amazing it is to see that God kept his promises in very precise detail, we need to understand that to Israel, Euphrates was not a river in the east, but a river in the north. Because in Old Testament prophecy, God pronounces judgment on sinful Israel and Judah in terms of armies that would come from beyond the Euphrates River to the north. So when we read in prophecy about armies coming from the Euphrates River or from the north, it means the same thing. And God did that. He sent Assyria against, Assyria against Israel and Babylon against Judah, both nations from just beyond the Euphrates River. And we see that what John, in his vision, is describing here in the sixth trumpet is a lot of what the Old Testament prophets describe when talking about the judgment that God will mete out to sinful Israel and sinful Judah. And it's important to note that God told his people this would happen before they ever set foot in the Promised Land. In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells of curses that will befall his own people if they're disobedient to him. And this is a long portion of scripture here. I'm going to give you only the highlights because we have so much to cover tonight. But pay careful attention to the curses that God pronounces here for unbelief. And you'll see these curses are in large part references to what John is seeing in the book of Revelation. Deuteronomy 28. God says to Israel, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will send on you curses. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. 
You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who will not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege. And in distress, which your enemy shall distress you. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness and grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. So we see here in these curses that they're threatened with the plagues of Egypt, with famine, pestilence, war, death, all things that we've seen already in the seals. Darkness is part of a judgment. Locusts are part of a judgment. We see the eagle of judgment, like the eagle that pronounces woe right before the, tr the, the fifth trumpet. We see rain ceases, which we'll see later in the book. We see the invasion of an enemy nation. And that's what we see used as symbols of judgment in this trumpet. Starting in verse 16, we read, The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. See, we thought the locusts from last week were pretty scary. I mean, this is, I, I can't even get my head around what he's describing here. But there's more because an invasion of an army, of an enemy army, and the destruction of Israel was used by the prophets to predict the invasion of Assyria and later Babylon. But as we've seen already, those defeats, those captivities point us to the final judgment of the enemies of God. And this is what Isaiah prophesied about. Notice here the description of a nation from the ends of the earth like God warned about in Deuteronomy. Isaiah 5. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwinds. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. Or what Jeremiah said. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, again, Beyond the Euphrates, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. A little later on, raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations is set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without, without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall both fail king and officials. The priest shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, it shall be well with you, whereas the sword is reached of every life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights of a desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. 
During the captivity, after the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, the prophets continued using the symbol of a nation from the north to describe coming judgment. Ezekiel 38, again, I'm just going to give you highlights here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus is the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tor Togerma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready. You and all your hosts that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war. The lands whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which has been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming like a storm. It will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize the spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land, but the nations may know me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Right, there's so much here that pertains to what we're going to see even later in the book of Revelation. So much that pertains to the time at the very end. We're going to spend an hour just on this passage, but we won't do that tonight. For now, I want us to notice God is forcing another army. This is no longer Babylon. This is no longer Assyria. That is already behind Israel. They're going to force another army from the north to come against his people. An army from the north to attack the people of God. And God would use that occasion to judge them, the attacking armies, and vindicate his holiness before the eyes of his people. And we'll see later in the book of Revelation, this prophecy is revisited in one of the descriptions of the final judgment, when the thousand years are ended, which means right at the end of the second coming. We'll see this in Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of a sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil would deceive them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. Even after the captivity, the same imagery was used. Let's return to the prophet Joel. We looked at this last week. We saw the parallels between what we read last week and what we saw in the fifth trumpet, where we saw the locusts that were like horses. But I said there'd be more of a parallel in the sixth trumpet. So let's take another look at a portion of that Joel passage. We're going to start in Joel chapter 2 this time. We read, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. 
The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So we see throughout all of prophetic history, we have these powerful armies coming from the north to execute judgment. But we need to realize something. All of these punishments pronounced by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel, they're not punishments against the nations. They're punishments against Israel. These are predictions of punishment against God's own people. So even though we see God will judge the nations that he uses to judge Israel, these are judgments that are pronounced against those who are supposed to be the people of God, who should have been the people of God. And that's important for our purposes tonight. Why? Because Israel was supposed to be the people of God, but they were not, because they disobeyed. So God sent all of those curses we saw in Deuteronomy. He sent all of those curses against them. And the final curse that God threatened was the removal of the sinful nation from the promised land that he gave them, which means their removal from the very presence of God. And in all of these prophecies, we see this will happen at the hands of this great army from the north, beyond the border of the land God promised, being the Euphrates River. And if we know the history, we know that God saved a remnant from the captivity, as we've seen before. This is recorded in the book of Ezra. Because not all of Israel was disobedient. There were true spiritual people of God among the physical and typological people of God. Go read Hebrews chapter 11 and see that there were, in fact, spiritual people of God among Israel. And yet, because of the sin of the unsaved of Israel, the saved also suffered. But God restored them. He preserved them through that tribulation and returned the faithful remnant to him, to the land. He brings them back into his presence. And if we have a further fulfillment of those prophecies beyond Babylon, if we have a further fulfillment of those prophecies in the final judgment, then we might expect that history would repeat itself, which the Bible does over and over and over and over and over again. So we might expect that once again there might be those who are supposed to be the people of God but are not, and so will be judged by God. And we might expect that since ultimately Israel was a type of the church, this might happen to the church like it did to Israel. And it will. Let me explain. To understand what is presented here symbolically in the sixth trumpet, we need to know what the Bible says will happen at the end of time elsewhere. Right? We need to interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation based on what the Bible clearly teaches elsewhere. Because like we saw last week, to do anything else is just begging the question. It's basically saying, hey, the book of Revelation teaches this because I believe it's what, that that is what's going to happen because the book of Revelation teaches it. That's not good enough. So let's take a look at what the Bible says elsewhere about the end of time and Christ's return. We've seen Jesus himself, we just saw this last week, he talks about one single coming where the righteous are saved and the wicked are judged. But what else will happen? Well, in the Apostle Paul's final letter to Timothy, he warns him about the end. And he says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, 
Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and John Brace opposed Moses, those are the uh, magicians of, of Egypt, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, saying to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In context, what Paul's talking to Timothy about is what will happen in the church. He's talking about this happening in the church. Sin will abound in the church in the last days. People will have an outward appearance of godliness, but will deny its power. This is talking about false converts within the church, false leaders within the church, false teachers within the church, those that are in the visible church, but are not really part of God's spiritual people, just like many of Israel. God's true people will be persecuted, but the imposters, he says, the fake Christians in the midst of God's people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What Paul is describing here is a large-scale apostasy from the church at the end of time. These are those that Christ talks about in the parable of the sower. Where he says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Remember, we saw judgment of the unsaved through Satan's deception. That was in the third trumpet. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are false conversions he's describing. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the word and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This could be false converts within the church. Could be maybe a reference to just very immature Christians who never grow in their faith, you decide. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So we see here a difference between true and false converts is the perseverance. They persevere through tribulation, Christ says. And we see that those who stay grounded in the word are the ones who persevere, which is why Paul tells Timothy in both letters to abide in the truth of the gospel. But we know that long before Paul wrote to Timothy about this apostasy, that the church in Thessalonica wrote Paul a letter to ask him, what happens to those who die without seeing Christ return? So Paul answers them in his first letter to them. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, that day to surprise you like a thief. I notice a few things here. First, Paul tells them, all this information I'm giving you here in this letter, guys, came straight from Christ. Notice also, this description of the one coming of the Lord includes the resurrection, the rapture, and the sudden destruction of the wicked while they think they're living in peace and security. Now, how you can separate the rapture from the resurrection and from the destruction of the wicked by seven years and put the resurrection after the rapture and align the idea of a great tribulation that the unsaved endure with Paul's assertion that they'll be living in peace and security and suddenly be destroyed, I don't know. But our point for tonight is that he answers their question. Those who die in Christ will be resurrected at his return, and then those who are alive will be raptured and given glorified resurrection bodies. But notice, he says, for believers, the coming of the Lord does not come like a thief. That's for the people who don't know him. See, we should be ready for it. It should not surprise us, and that's because we are to be diligent in waiting for our Lord to return, like Jesus told us. That's absolutely true, but it's also... Because if we're paying attention to what's going on, we'll know he's near because the church is going to suffer a great apostasy. Now, how do we know that? Because in response to Paul's response, the church at Thessalonica writes back to Paul and asks him, well, how do we know we haven't missed all of this? What if the dead were already raised and the rapture already happened, and yet we're still here? So Paul responds in his second letter. And he says to them, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ that are being gathered together to him. That is the resurrection, the rapper, right? rapture that he just talked about, are being gathered together with him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Now, what day is he talking about? The day of the Lord coming and the day of the resurrection and the rapture, unless the rebellion comes first. That's the apostasy he's talking about. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's who is commonly called the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's saying, guys, you should know this already. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may, be, so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice what Paul tells these these Christians at Thessalonica. He says, these Christians should know you guys could not have missed the rapture, you guys could not have missed the resurrection, because before that will happen, there will be a rebellion and the Antichrist will be revealed. Have you seen already? We looked in 1 John, if you remember, there are many Antichrists in the world already. There always have been, always will be until Christ's return. But right before that return, Paul teaches us there will be an Antichrist who is the culmination of all the Antichrists. And he'll be revealed when? Before the rapture. It says it plainly here, the rapture happens after the coming of the Antichrist who will perform all kinds of false wonders by the power of Satan. Now, if there is a secret rapture of the church, a seven-year tribulation, then Christ's return in judgment and the resurrection, then Paul was wrong on, on a bunch of counts. 
First off, he was wrong. The dead in Christ don't rise first. And he'd be wrong. The Thessalonians would not know that the coming of Christ is near because the Antichrist, true Christians would never see him, right? He'd be doing the exact opposite of what he's trying to do here, allaying their fears that they could miss the rapture. Because if there's a pre-tribulation rapture, then if they saw the Antichrist revealed, they did miss the rapture. So Paul can't be saying that. See, and this is why the Lord does not come like a thief in the night for us. Because we know what will happen right before he comes. And the apostasy of the Antichrist are not two separate issues. Because notice where the Antichrist will be. He will be in the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. And because of the power of Satan behind him, who, as we saw, uses deception to keep people from the truth, delusion, Paul calls it here, these people in the church will believe lies. These are people in the church who refuse to be saved. So notice the judgment of the trumpets, right? We have here in this passage of Paul the deception of Satan, a refusal to believe the gospel. We have God deluding them with sin as punishment for their sin. That's the first three trumpets. And we saw in 1 Thessalonians, those who do not believe, he says, are in darkness unlike us. Remember, we talked about darkness being the symbolic of all the temporal judgment of the unsaved. But there's more. The Apostle Peter writes this about the end in 2 Peter. He said, But false prophets also arose among the people, talking about Israel, just like there will be false teachers among you, the church, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and become of them, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He says this a little later in his letter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We see again, false teaching within the church in the last days, and then judgment. Just like the judgment God sent in the flood with Noah. He says, instead of water this time, God said, remember the, the, the rainbow? He said, I'm never going to destroy the, the earth by water again. This time will be by fire. Jude warns us the same. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of a spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's talking about division in the church. Division of worldly people from spiritually people in what Jude says is the last time. So taking all of these New Testament passages together, we see the end of time, shortly before Christ's coming, shortly before the resurrection rapture, shortly before the final judgment, there will be an antichrist that appears from within the church to lead many astray, and he will because of the power of Satan behind him. He will declare himself to be God, Paul says. He might even declare himself to be the second coming of Christ. You remember in 1 John we saw... There are people who are going to claim to be Christ returned. 
And we read that many will follow him and they will fall away from the church. And when this happens, we'll know that Christ's coming is near. Okay, now back to the sixth trumpet. We have the symbolism used throughout the Old Testament that spoke of judgment against those that should have been the people of God but were not. These are the false believers, those who were not really of the spiritual house of God in Israel. And knowing that the New Testament clearly teaches that there will be a revealing of not just a lawless liar who claims to be God, but a revealing of many false believers who buy into his lies. So what we see here in the sixth trumpet, what we are seeing symbolized is this event and God's punishment on those false believers right near the end. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden, golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound to the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of a day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So notice these angels, angels of judgment, they're bound, where? At the Euphrates. And Paul spoke to the Thessalonians about there being a restrainer on the Antichrist that will be released before the ensuing final judgment. We saw the river, the north boundary, is where judgment comes against the false people of God. Paul spoke about the foreordained time that this would all happen, and we see here this is down to the very minute. Paul spoke about that. We see all of those things here, and notice this is not a complete judgment. It is a partial judgment, because we see that third again. We've seen this with the seals and the trumpets, that a third of the people die here. But notice there is absolutely no explanation. There is no transition at all between the angels that represent the agents of judgment and the army that represent the agents of judgment. Did you notice how awkward this transition was here? So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. See, the angels and this army represent the same judgment. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. This time I saw the horses in my vision, just like we saw in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel. And those who wrote on them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire. Remember what we saw in Joel, of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses like lion's head. In all four of those prophecies, we saw the lion. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. What we saw last week is um, punishment by God. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke of the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for the tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Remember we saw in the, I think it was the Ezekiel prophecy, talking about destruction before and behind. Please note the awesome description of his mighty army coming in judgment. The similarities between the war horses and the locusts from the fifth trumpet. Lion heads, venomous tails. Lions and serpents we've seen already in the Old Testament, both symbols of judgment. Notice the smoke of a sulfur and the fire, the plagues that are the righteous judgment of God. So what will happen, knowing that there's this great apostasy coming and that God is going to judge some of those who apostatize, it is going to be obvious judgment for their sin. I don't know what this is representing here, these horses with the serpent's tails, but it is going to be obvious judgment. People are going to realize these people are being judged by God because we see what happened to the rest. They are not going to repent and God is continuing to judge them through their sin, through their hard hardness towards the gospel and Satan. Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and, of, demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And what we have here is another callback to the book of Joel, because after those judgments that he predicts in chapter 1, which we saw last week, and the first half of chapter 2, which we just saw a few minutes ago, he puts forth a call to repentance immediately after. Let's pick it up in the last verse of the passage that we already considered. 
Joel chapter 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And this is talking to Israel, God's people returning to the Lord. This is what the unsaved that we see here in the book of Revelation do not do after God's judgment. God sent Babylon. Joel, after the captivity, calls them, repent, because God will do this again. The unsaved do not do that after this judgment. So there's one more trumpet of judgment, and we'll see that actually in a few weeks, because you look with the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet contains a, a few little rabbit trails that we have to look at next week.